And so if you would follow along as I read from Romans chapter 3, verses 21 to 26, and God's inspired and inerrant and sufficient word reads, But now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. But it is the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe, for there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by his grace through redemption, which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith. And this was to demonstrate his righteousness, because in God's merciful restraint, he let the sins previously committed go unpunished for the demonstration that is of his righteousness at the present time so that he would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Father, we ask a blessing upon the reading of your word. And as we spend the next 30 minutes or so making comments about them, trying to extrapolate whatever you would have for us this morning from these verses. I especially invite your spirit to illuminate my heart and my mind, our heart and our minds, so that we can understand what this means. And Lord, this morning, maybe we're going to spend a little more time on understanding and not so much on meaning, I'm not sure. But Father, I do pray that you would prepare our heart and our mind for what you would have for us this morning. Father, it's not a form of Gnosticism. We know that knowledge doesn't save anyone, and yet knowledge for our faith and the reason why we believe what we believe is so important. And so I pray, Lord, that you would speak to us here this morning. We are listening. We pray it in the name of Jesus. Amen. Nothing but the blood of Jesus, part two. John Calvin in his Institutes of Christian Religion, he wrote this. We explain justification simply as the acceptance with which God receives us into his favor as righteous people. And we say that it consists in the remission of sins and the imputation of Christ's righteousness. Thomas Watson wrote in the Body of Divinity, Justification is the very hinge and pillar of Christianity. An error about justification is dangerous like a defect in a foundation. Justification by Christ is a spring of, of the water of life. Justification is the gospel. The good news, we have been acquitted, we have been found not guilty, we have been justified. The means, the cause, the reason we are justified, I believe, is under great pressure. And certainly in the culture, but also in many Christian circles. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. The exclusivity of Jesus is offensive to many. Last week, we, we never moved beyond verse 24, and it was salvation defined. And in verse 24, we see the definition of salvation. What is salvation? It is being justified. How? By grace. Why? Because of redemption. That's salvation defined. Today, we're going to look at salvation means. We finished with justification. Ransom, redemption, redeemed, all the same word. It is the main artery running throughout all Scripture. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 20, The Son of Man did not come to be served, 
but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. In Hebrews chapter 9, Christ appeared as a high priest, not through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood, having obtained eternal redemption. First Peter, you were not redeemed with perishable things, but with the precious blood of Christ. That brings us now today to verse 25a, and salvation means. How is salvation brought about? In verse 25a, let me just read verse 24 again. Being justified as a gift by his grace through redemption, which is in Christ Jesus, whom God put or displayed publicly. Some translations do put put forward, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith. How does Jesus ransom us? How does Jesus redeem us? How does Jesus justify us, whom God displayed publicly? That's how verse 25 begins. And I want you to notice how verse 25 does begin. It says, whom God displayed publicly, whom God put forth. We must understand that it's God the Father who put forth Christ the Son. It is God who put forth Jesus, Christ the Son, as a propitiation, as an atonement, as the mercy seat, as an atoning cover, as a sacrifice, as a propitiatory offering on your and I behalf. To display publicly is just simply to put before a public audience for consideration, for proof, we could say, for consideration. I like the way that it says that. God displayed Jesus publicly. It wasn't anything done in secret. It was a public display of his son for us to consider for what? As a propitiation in his blood. Now, this word propitiation, it, it has a lot of different nuances, and it's actually quite a, a polarizing word for some and, and for many of us. But just to give you a, 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 a definition of propitiation, and we, we, we'll get there, but we can't just stop at this definition. But on the surface, not just in Christianity, but in all religions, all religions have God. In fact, everyone has a God of some sort, of some fashion, even if that God is self. And so how to uh, propitiation is just simply this. If you were going to take a, a definition from just a standard lexicon, a standard English dictionary even, this is what it will say. The means of appeasing wrath and gaining the will of an offended person especially with respect to sacrifices for appeasing angered deities. Deities there can be a lowercase d. It doesn't necessarily have to be an uppercase d, as we would think of as God. But it's appeasing the wrath of a god, of something. All religions have this type of thought process in some fashion or in this way. But it is this idea of appeasing the wrath of God that can be so offensive. And it actually, you know what? It really should be offensive as we think about exactly what that is. The uh, appeasing the wrath 
of God. Some, in fact, in the translation here for Romans chapter 3, verse 25, they do not translate this as propitiation, but rather as expiation. There's many pages written on the reason why it should be propitiation or expiation. And expiation is just simply, you can kind of get it from just starting with X. It is a softer term, and it's sometimes used to replace propitiation here. But expiation is the taking away of something, right? It comes right out of the word, the taking away of something. And so the thought is that it's the taking away of sins. Jesus takes away our sins. Is that true? Yes, of course that's true. Jesus does take away our sins. But this taking away of our sins still leaves us with the question, how are our sins taken away? That's propitiation. So, yes, we get the idea that Jesus does indeed take away our sins, but the, but the uncomfortableness comes in how that is done. And that is what we want to look at here this morning. But I also want to uh, leave this before we get started or mention this right at the onset here, and that is what God requires. God requires a propitiation for our sins, and what God requires, God provides. What God requires, God provides. Your sins need to be taken away indeed. And so, we interpret Scripture with Scripture. And so I want to turn to Hebrews chapter 9, and you would do well to turn here. We're going to spend a little bit of time here. And I promise you, uh, this is all going somewhere here this morning. And I think as we see this package come together at the end, I do trust that you will um, have a greater understanding, but also a greater meaning, uh, personal meaning, uh, also, if we may, of what Jesus has done, how he has achieved redemption. And so in, in, in Hebrews chapter 9, in Hebrews chapter 9, we see in verse um, We see in verse 5, and it says here that above it, now this is a description of the divine earthly sanctuary. I might as well start reading at verse 1. <laughs> now even the first covenant, first covenant, the first testimony, we call it the Old Testament, we all call it the Old Testament, we call it. Uh, it's it's the covenant, the first covenant had regulations for divine worship and the earthly sanctuary. For a tabernacle was equipped, the outer sanctuary in which were the lampstand, the table, the sacred bread. This is called the holy place. And behind the second veil, in verse 3, there was a tabernacle which is called a most holy place. And in the most holy place, verse 4, having a golden altar of incense, the Ark of the Covenant, covered on all sides with gold, in which was, and we'll get to this later, in which was a golden jar holding the manna, Aaron's staff which budded, and the table of the covenant, the table of the testimony, the Ten Commandments given to Moses by God on Mount Sinai. And above it were the cherubim of glory 
overshadowing the atoning cover. And this is what I want you to notice here is the atoning cover. It's exactly the same word that Paul is using in Romans chapter 3, verse 25. It's hilasterion. None of that means anything to you at the moment. But it's, it, it, and it can be translated as propitiation. That's what it is. It can be translated as an atoning cover, which that's what it is. It can be translated as a mercy seat. That's what it is. But we need to understand that there's three terms that are used that in English, and I put this in your bulletin for you, that are in English are translated the exact same way. So when reading English, it can bring some confusion as to what is meant. And so I want to look at these three ways that the Greek term, that the Greek uses, it's, it's hilaskomai, hilasmos, and hilasterion, all, all translated as propitiation, but all extremely important on their meaning and to, the, and to Jesus being the representation of all three of these. And so if you want to pull out your hand out there, your, your insert, you can certainly do that. Uh, because I think you'll probably want to reference that a little bit later. So I want to print it all out for you. And I want to stop or start right here at the beginning because I think that's where we need to start. And that is with Hilaskomai. Hilaskomai is the priest. It's propitiation. But it is the priest. It is the person who is performing the propitiation. Do you get this, right? So it's the priest who is carrying out the sacrificial offering that is being done. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 17. Therefore, in all things, he, Jesus, had to be made like his brothers. Why? So that he might become a merciful, faithful high priest in things pertaining to God. And here's our word, to make propitiation, to make hilaskomai, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. So what Hebrews is telling us is that Jesus is the priest who is carrying this out. Another way that propitiation that we use in English is translated in the Greek. That's also important for us to know. And that is often what we think about mostly about Jesus. And that is hilasmos. And hilasmos is the one, is the actual sacrifice. So, and that's also in English, we translate it as propitiation. This is where this confusion comes in. And so this is the actual sacrifice that the priest is offering up. 1 John 2, 2. And he himself, speaking again of Jesus, is the propitiation for our sins. And not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. 1 John 4, 10. In this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son for what? To be the propitiation, to be the sacrifice, to be the hilasmos for our sins. You see that? One more way, and this is what's used in our verse here. I'm reading every word, verse of the Bible, who, uh, the New Testament anyways, uh, not the Greek Old Testament, but the New Testament. We'll get to the Greek Old Testament. But the New Testament, where the propitiation is used, and we have it right here. Hilasterion, that is the place, that is the location, and this is what we want to focus on now for the rest of our time. That's the location where the priest, also a propitiation, carries out the sacrifice 
also a propitiation. So we've got the priest, we've got the sacrifice, we've got the location. We've got all three of those things. You see that? Hebrews chapter 9. And that's what we have right there. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 5. What I just read. And above it were the cherubim of glory, overshadowing the atoning cover. Your Bible may say mercy seat, an accurate translation. Maybe that's what it says. That, that's fine. That's exactly what it is. Romans chapter 3, verse 25, then in our verse here, whom God displayed publicly as the hilasterion, as the atoning seat cover, as the mercy seat. This is why. And, and we'll explain this further. This is why Jesus can say in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. There is nowhere, there is no other person, no other being, no other way, no other path up the mountain to the Father outside of Jesus because Jesus says, I am the priest, I am the sacrifice, I am the location. Jesus is the complete package. And that's why I wanted to take a little bit of a moment and, and have your eyes gloss over as glaze over as they are now to get your minds wrapped around this complete package that the Bible presents Jesus as. And this is why. This is why Watson can say what he says, that this is why an error about justification is so dangerous. Eliminate one of the three. Eliminate Jesus as high priest. Eliminate Jesus as sacrifice. Eliminate Jesus as justification. And you indeed have a crack in the foundation of your faith. Maybe you're not convinced yet. And you may be saying, what's the big deal? Let me show you the significance of propitiation. Let me show you the significance of the atoning cover of the mercy seat. Of, let me show you the significance of Jesus fulfilling the law. The significance of Jesus completing and fulfilling the Old Testament. To do that, I want to go to Exodus. I promise you folks, I'm going somewhere. I want to go to Exodus. Exodus chapter 25. I want to go to Exodus chapter 25 again to continue to develop and draw this picture of Jesus, the completeness of Jesus for you. And to really uh, back up what Jesus says about himself in John 14, 6. So in Exodus chapter 25, starting at verse 17, it says this, giving instructions for the tabernacle, for the sanctuary. And you shall make an atoning cover. If you, there's our word. You shall make an atoning cover of pure gold. Give some dimensions of it. Verse 18, you shall make two cherubim of gold. Make them of hammered work at the ends of the atoning cover. Make one cherubim at one end. One cherubim at the other end, you shall make the cherubim of one piece with the atoning cover at its two ends. And the cherubim shall have their wings spread upward, covering the atoning cover with their wings. They're facing one another. The faces of the cherubim are turned down to the atoning cover. You shall put the atoning cover on top of the ark. 
and in the ark you shall put the testimony which I will give to you. Verse 22, there Yahweh says, I will meet with you. From above the atoning cover, I will meet with you. From between the two cherubim, which are upon the ark of the testimony, I will speak to you, with you, about every commandment that I will give to you and to the sons of Israel. In these few verses, atoning cover is mentioned seven times. Now, I'm not a numeric person that says there's, well, let me just say, seven times. As soon as I say that in a Christian setting, for, for many of us, we think, oh, the number of perfection. True, but that's not the point here. It's just a coincidence, I believe, because the section of verses that took, the importance of it, why I'm calling to your attention, in these few verses, atoning cover, hilasterion in the Greek Old Testament, is used seven times. There is something significant about the atoning cover that as a Christian community, we may not give a lot of thought to. Now, we're going to continue. In Leviticus chapter 16. So if you want to turn to Leviticus chapter 16, and hopefully you've got your finger still on Hebrews chapter 9, because we're going to go back there. Hebrews chapter 16, starting at verse 1. I'm not going to read all these verses, no worries. But but I think it's important. It's like when you go down this path, where do you start? Where do you stop? Starting at verse 1. Now Yahweh spoke to Moses. I think this is important. After the death of the two sons of Aaron. Now, how did the two sons of Aaron die? They brought strange fire before Yahweh in the most holy place. They brought strange fire. That's going to be important as we go on. Keep that in the back of your mind. And when they had approached the presence of Yahweh with this strange fire, He's saying they died. Now, the author here in verse 1 is assuming we already know that story. We're not going to go back and cover that story, but you can for yourself if you like. And Yahweh said to Moses, tell your brother Aaron, Aaron, who had the two sons die, tell your brother Aaron, the spokesman for, for Moses, the spokesman for God, tell your brother Aaron that he shall not enter at any time the holy place inside the veil, before the atoning cover, which is on the ark, or he will die. And if you need evidence of that, Aaron, see exhibit one and two, your sons. For I will appear in the cloud over the atoning cover. This is the significance about the incense, about the strange fire. I will appear in the cloud over the atoning cover. Aaron shall enter the holy place with this. He goes with the bull as a sin offering. And then it gives instructions about what he's supposed to wear. There's very specific instructions that he is to follow. And then he's also supposed to take two goats, 
right? One goat is going to be for Yahweh. One goat is going to be for the people. He's going to cast lots. The goat for Yahweh is going to be slaughtered, and his blood is taken into the most holy place. That's the propitiation. The other goat, sins of the people, are going to be placed upon that goat, and that goat is going to be expiated into the wilderness. You see that? So there's two goats. One is the, is the sin offering. Let's just say that. And the other is the one who takes away the means that the, the sins are taken outside the temple into the wilderness. Verse 10. And the goat on which the lot for the scapegoat fell shall be presented alive before Yahweh to make atonement upon it, to send it into the wilderness as the expiation, as the scapegoat. Then Aaron shall make the bull of the sin offering, which he made for himself. First he had to offer up a sacrifice for himself before he could do it on behalf of the people to make an atonement for himself. Verse, 20, verse 12, you shall take a fire pan full of coals of the fire. Remember about the strange fire of coal of fire upon the altar before Yahweh in two handfuls of finely ground sweet incense and bring it inside the veil. Aaron shall put the incense on the fire before Yahweh. Why? So that the cloud of incense may cover the atoning cover that is on the ark of the testimony. Otherwise, again, Yahweh says, otherwise he will die. Follow it like this, and you will live. But do not follow it like this, exhibit A, 1 and 2. Moreover, he shall take some of the blood of the bull and sprinkle it with his finger upon the atoning cover. That, the bull is for Aaron. And he's also supposed to take the other goat that is for Yahweh, that represents the, the, the propitiation, that re represents the, the hilosmos, that represents the sacrifice for the sins of the people. Slaughter that goat also and bring that blood and sprinkle it also upon the atoning cover. And then as the fire, the cloud of incense goes above the atoning cover, Yahweh will come within that cloud and speak to Aaron, the spokesperson. This is going to be important. The spokesperson for Yahweh. God is speaking through specific person here, this priest Aaron, to the people. So let's continue. And he shall make an atonement, verse 16, for the holy place because of the impurities of the sons of Israel and because of their unlawful acts regarding the sin. These were specific instructions that they had to follow at least once a year, but often, more often than that. Again, just as a side note, just to show and build the importance of this atoning cover, seven times again, nothing significant about that number, but maybe it is, uh, again we have atoning cover. Four times in these few verses, we have atonement. We have atonement. I think there's something significant there. That's the backstory now to this atoning cover. So are you ready to go to the New Testament? Are we ready to come back? And so that's the backstory. Now let's come back to what in the world I'm talking about. But you're already tracking with me in Romans chapter 3, verse 25, and in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 5. 
Let's go back now again and take a look at Romans chapter or at Hebrews chapter 9 because there's another significant piece here that I want to highlight again Remember, our focus is Jesus is the atoning cover. That is our focus this morning. What's the significance of that? Let's go back to Romans chapter 9. In Romans chapter 9, again, I'm not going to start from the beginning because I already read it. Specific instructions were given, and, 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 and there was three items placed in the Ark of the Covenant. And we want to look at those three items. I never gave them much thought. But since Cheryl said I couldn't start over from the beginning, I had some more time to just do some thinking. And I was like, Why, what, what's up with these three items in the ark? And so there was the golden, there was manna, there was the Ten Commandments, and there was also Aaron's, this priest that we already talked about, his staff was in the Ark of the Covenant. Why? Why were these three things within the Ark of the Covenant? Well, Ten Commandments, of course, we can understand that, well, they were probably in there because God gave these tablets to Moses on Mount Sinai as a command, as something for them to follow as the law. God gave them specifically to Moses on Mount Sinai to keep the law. They needed to keep the law. The second thing that we see that was in the Ark of the Covenant is manna. Now, first and foremost, as we think about manna, as they wandered around the wilderness for 40 years, manna sustained the people. What God requires, God provides. Well, God, we've got to have food to survive, right? And so he gave them manna every day to go out into the wilderness. And I think there's something significant about manna. And so since we're just maybe doing more of a lecture this morning, I'm not sure what I'm doing. But I want to think about manna, right? And so you go to Revelation chapter 2, verse 17. And in Revelation chapter 2, verse 17, where John is talking to the seven churches, and in there he tells the church, to the one who overcomes, John says, I will give some of the hidden manna. That's right here in the Ark of the Covenant. I will give some of the hidden manna. Literally, I doubt it. Not much in Revelation is literal mostly figuratively speaking. It's mostly this wild imagination that John has, this dream that John has that God is giving him, and he's trying to put words to it so we can understand something nobody has ever seen. But the significance of this manna, I think we can also find here in John chapter 6. So in John chapter 6, verse 48, when the Jewish leaders were arguing with Jesus and what he's making himself out to be, in verse 48, Jesus says, I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate manna in the wilderness, and they died. This is the bread that comes down out of heaven. Why? So that anyone may eat of it and not die. Verse 58, this is the bread that came down out of heaven. Not as the fathers ate and died. But this is now the bread that comes down out of heaven, and anyone who eats this bread will live forever. That is the significance of the manna being in the Ark of the Covenant. Last one, and then we're going to bring a period to those three. That's Aaron's staff. 
Now, again, where do you start and stop with this? Aaron's staff is an interesting story. Aaron's staff budded. And Aaron's staff didn't just bud. It flowered and it produced almonds. Why? Do you remember the story? You can look it up in Numbers chapter 16 and 17. Uh, You probably are familiar with Korah's rebellion when the ground opened up and swallowed the people. This is the prefix to Aaron's staff that budded because Korah came and Korah and 250 other well-renowned people, the Bible tells us, came before Moses and Aaron and said, hey, we are holy people also. Why are you the only ones who can go into the, uh, the most in the holy place? Why are you the only ones who say that you speak on behalf of God? We also speak on behalf of God. We also can speak on behalf of God. We don't like this idea, Moses. You said you're going to take us out of Egypt into a land flowing with milk and honey. You read it. It's there. You, uh, with milk and honey. We have found no milk and honey. In fact, we found desert. You said that there's going to be land. We're going to get an inheritance of land and vineyards. There is no such thing here. In fact, Moses, we left a land flowing with milk and honey. We left a land where we had a place or we had a space, where we had vineyards we could have, where we prospered. Moses, you took us out of that area, and you are not fulfilling what you had promised. Therefore, we don't want to listen to you anymore. We ourselves are going to go before the holy place, and we are going to go beyond. Because Moses, Aaron, you're holding out on us. You are not being straight with us. You are misrepresenting God. This is all what they're thinking. And so Moses says, all right, come, come. And if I am incorrect, then they will die a natural death. If I'm correct. The very ground under their feet will open up. And before Moses could finish speaking, the ground opened up and swallowed everyone. And they went down to Sheol, the realm of the dead. They still didn't believe him. The next day they said, hey, Moses, you caused those people to be killed. So God said, you know what, Moses, this is what I want you to do. Have a staff from each and every tribe. Just an interesting side note. Twelve tribes, twelve staffs. Actually, there was 13 staffs because Aaron gets one. He's not one of the tribes. He's from the priestly line. You bring one of the, side note, so 12 tribes bring these staffs, put them before the Ark of the Testimony, along with Aaron's staff, the one that buds. That's my spokesman. That's my spokesman. That will show that I am Yahweh and that Moses and Aaron are my true servants. Moses and Aaron are my true People, my true representation. Verse 17, 10 of Numbers. Yahweh said to Moses, put the staff of Aaron in front of the testimony to be kept as a sign against the rebels. Why? So that that may put an end to their grumbling against you. Nope, against me. That was also in the Ark of the Covenant. Those three items were in the Ark of the Covenant. This is the significance of Jesus being the atoning cover. I just jerked you back, I know. But this is the the significance of Jesus being the atoning cover, the mercy seat, the fulfillment of the Old Testament sacrificial system. Jesus is himself, the priest who carries out the atoning sacrifice. 
Jesus is himself the sacrifice of atonement. Jesus is himself the place where the atonement occurs. Jesus is himself the only one who could fulfill the law, the copy that is in the Ark of the Testimony. Jesus is the only one who could fill the law to perfection. Jesus is the only one, the manna in the Ark of the Covenant, who can give eternal life. Jesus is the only one, Aaron's staff that budded in the Ark of the Testimony, who is the true, who is the right representation, mediator for God. That is the significance of what we see here now. Salvation is only now and has only ever been possible by the shedding of blood. Paul does not say the death of Jesus. Paul says the blood of Jesus. So that was a bit of an excursion, a bit of a a detour. But when Paul left the church, Let's try to get, when Paul left the church in Ephesus, he told the pastors and elders, the word here in Acts chapter 2, 20, verse 28, is the same word, pastor, elder, bishop. One of the things that I've been telling you elders, as you know, is we need to see ourselves not as a body of people, not a body of men who pay the bills for the church, though we do that, who make decisions for the church, though we do that. Elders, we are pastors of this church. I am sure, but so are all the elders. And Paul is now giving instructions to the elders of the church at Ephesus. And this is what he says. Be on guard for yourself and for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, the same word, has made you overseers for what? To shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. Do you see the importance of the role of elder? Do you understand that, elders? I know you understand that, elders, but church, do you understand the importance of the men you put in the position of elder? We are to shepherd the church. We are to protect the church that Jesus shed his blood for. That is our goal. That is our objective. And we do it by the word of God. We follow the word of God the best that we can. We don't want to be Korahs. We want to be Aaron's, no matter the cost. We're not perfect. We need the whole body to do life together. But elders have been given a specific task. Pastors it is, and elders, it is a huge responsibility. And we will give an account to God for how we shepherd his church. Without the shedding of blood, Hebrews says, there's no forgiveness of sins. And what God provides, God, or what God requires, God does indeed provide. Okay, catch your breath. Salvation was provided in the Old Testament Exactly the same way that salvation is provided in the New Testament. The Old Testament sacrificial system was a compromise, if you will, was a babysitter, if you will, because of what is now to come and what now has come. And that is in verse 25b and verse 26, salvation vindicated. 
The death of Jesus was no accident. Jesus is the high priest. Jesus is the sacrifice. Jesus is the, the, the covering, the place where this occurs because he was put forth and appointed by God for this. Acts 22.23, this man, Jesus, was delivered over by the predetermined. What does predetermined mean? You know what it means. By the predetermined plan and the foreknowledge. What does foreknowledge mean? And the foreknowledge of God. But you nailed, this is the religious people who should have recognized Jesus for who he was. You nailed to the cross and put him to death. Hebrews 9.15, for this reason, Jesus is the mediator of a new covenant. New signifies the old is no more. It is now new covenant. So that since a death has taken place, the redemption of the violations that were committed under the first covenant in the Old Testament. Do you get this? So the violations that happened in the Old Testament, Hebrews is telling us, those who have been called, called in the Old Testament, just as they're called in the New Testament, may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. Do you see that? And Paul is saying that here today in our verse 26. Verse 25b. This was to demonstrate, to prove. It's proof. It's evidence. This was to demonstrate, that is, of uh, uh, his righteousness, because in God's merciful restraint, he let the sins previously committed go unpunished. The Old Testament. For the demonstration that is in his righteousness at the present time, so that he would be the just and the justifier. So that he is just and the justifier. Sometimes we have these conversations about, and we've got some of this confusion with the Old Testament. What does it mean? What's the purpose of it? How are people justified in the Old Testament? It seems as though some were never even given an opportunity. The Old Testament is the same as the New. God is just and the justifier because of what he has done right here in the person, in his son, in God, Jesus. This was to demonstrate his righteousness, to validate it is to prove. The only biblical view. The only biblical view of atonement is penal substitution, initiated and provided by God. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. For the wages of sin is death, but gracious gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. Jesus is our Redeemer, our Savior. And if he is our Redeemer and our Savior, he must also be our Master and our high priest, and it is only he, it is only he, it is only Jesus, it is nobody else, I don't want to, nobody else can forgive sins, it is only Jesus, it is only Jesus who can forgive sins, no one else, I don't care what a man in a robe says, only Jesus can forgive sins. He is our high priest. He is our sacrifice. He is the location, our atoning cover. Jesus is our high priest. Jesus is our sacrifice. Jesus is this atoning cover. And that is why Jesus can say, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one can come to the Father but through me. Father, we thank you.
We thank you for the simplicity of your message. Though I have done my best to complicate it. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Father, we thank you for what you have done on our behalf. And Father, maybe we can't understand it any more now than we did before, or maybe we perfectly understood it before and it was just an exercise in renewing. Father, may the simplicity of your message shine through, even in its complexity, even in the questions that we may have. It is because you loved us so much that you sent your son so that we may have eternal life through Jesus. I pray it in the name of Jesus. Amen.